Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Thank you so much to Trennan and to the BBA for helping us put this on. But my name is Sarah Blair. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the pro bono counsel at Prisoners Legal Services. I'm really excited to talk with you all about the pro bono opportunities we have. But first, I wanted to give our wonderful panelists a chance to introduce themselves. They're all folks who have been involved with PLS in various capacities. So if uh, if you all could go ahead and introduce yourselves, where you work, and kind of what your general practice consists of, I think that would be great for our viewers to get to know you all. Maybe we'll start with Stephanie. Hi, everybody. Um, Stephanie Lynn, she, her. I work at Wilmer Hale in litigation. I've been doing litigation here for about nine years. I do mainly intellectual property litigation, so patents, copyrights, trade secrets, that kind of thing. Great. So, Jen, maybe? Hi, I'm Jennifer McKinnon. I am. Um, I have a firm, Weiser McKinnon LLP, in Boston. I'm on the board of PLS. I have a background um, as a public defender with CPCS in Massachusetts. Um, our firm now we do criminal defense and we do a lot of civil rights litigation, prisoners' rights litigation, um, as well as some um, other random litigation. Nice to meet you all. And Ada. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Ada. I use she, her pronouns. I'm an attorney here at PLS, um, and I work here mostly on medical parole, um, and I also work on issues related to elders, specifically healthcare and disability-related issues, um, and I work with our policy team. So thanks so much. Fantastic. So we're going to spend most of our time today talking with our panelists about their work with PLS. But before we get to that, I just wanted to give a little bit of an overview of the organization, um, the work that we do, and kind of how we do it. So we are a nonprofit organization, and we are, to put it quite simply, devoted to improving the lives of people who are incarcerated in Massachusetts. And we do that through a various, um, a variety of different ways. So we have a docket of impact litigation cases that we litigate often alongside co-counsel um, like Stephanie. And we also do a handful of individual cases. Um, specifically, we investigate brutality cases, um, so instances of guards assaulting prisoners. We do a lot of policy work that Ada is involved in trying to advance legislation that's going to improve the lives of incarcerated people in Massachusetts. And beyond that, we have a racial justice and equity team that works to make sure that everything that we do has a racial justice focus. So we have our um, we have we do a lot of different things. And obviously, with all of that, we need help doing so. And so that's why we're really glad to be here for pro bono week to talk about our pro bono opportunities. Um, I can give a very brief overview of like the sorts of pro bono work that we have and then turn it over to the people who actually do that kind of work to talk about what their experience was like. So like I mentioned, um, one major area of pro bono work that we do is, or that we solicit help for is with our impact litigation cases. 
So Stephanie is here as somebody who works with us um, from Wilmer Hale on impact cases. So we do that. We also refer out cases, uh, so usually civil rights cases that we identify as strong cases to folks who wanna take it on either pro bono or contingency fee. So people who work at firms, maybe smaller firms and want to take on cases, but can't do it on a fully pro bono basis. We also refer contingency fee. And we refer out um, medical parole cases, which Ada is gonna give more details on. And beyond that, we try to develop different projects for folks who might not be able to do a litigation case, who might not have litigation experience, but who still want to do research or find other ways to support us. So those are all things that we actively work to develop. And um, we're really happy to basically hear from anybody who wants to get involved in whatever capacity. So with that, I know I mentioned medical parole, and maybe we can have Ada talk a little bit about what that is, because that is a big area that um, we offer pro bono opportunities in. Sure, happy to. Um, so medical parole, um, some of you in the audience will already be familiar with what medical parole is. Um, it's a system that's basically known as compassionate release in most other jurisdictions, but um, it's it's established through the medical parole statute, which was created under the Criminal Justice Reform Act of 2018, or sort of omnibus um, CJ reform bill. Um, and what it does is it states that individuals who are either terminally ill, meaning that a physician has found that they have 18 months or less to live, or they are permanently cognitively or physically incapacitated, um, are able to petition the commissioner of correction, the head of the DOC, uh, for early release um, subject to those, those requirements. Um, they additionally have to establish that they no longer pose a risk to public safety. And so as advocates, what you would be doing is filing a petition uh, for release under medical parole with the commissioner of correction. Um, these are relatively, it's, it's not traditional litigation. This is a totally agency-based uh, process. Um, and so as a result, these projects are usually shorter. Um, they mostly consist of, of course, meeting with the client, engaging with them, um, getting a sense of how their medical conditions have limited them. So what are the impacts on their activities of daily living? Um, how does it impact the way in which they negotiate the prison physically? Um, and what's their disease pressure progression look like? Um, looking at medical records to sort of figure out, uh, you know, whether or not their physicians um, at outside hospitals, including places like Boston Medical Center, might be willing to support medical parole. Um, and also communicating with uh, the DOC and in the future, sort of later in the process of the parole board um, to find uh, a way to you know, negotiate the sort of terms of release. So what we call the medical parole release plan. Um, the process is it's typically a, a two month process. So it takes a total of 66 days. Um, the initially you, you file a petition with the commissioner of correction, as I mentioned, um, and uh, this petition gets sent to the superintendent of the facility in which the person is incarcerated. That person has 21 days uh, to make a recommendation as to release, um, also obtain medical uh, documents uh, regarding the person's condition, um, including a formal medical evaluation. Um, and also um, to draft up a plan for the person's release on medical parole if they were to be released, either to a home of a family member or in most cases to a nursing home. Um, and then from there, the commissioner of correction has 45 more days to make a determination of her own. Um, in that process, we'll also consult the DA of the jurisdiction in which the person was prosecuted, as well as the victim if there's a victim of the case. So um, it's a relatively short process. And at the end of that, there is a right of 
there's an opportunity to appeal um, to the superior courts. And so um, if you were involved in a petition, we would help train you. Of course, we are in the process of building sort of a, a set of training documents um, and training modules. But in addition to that, we'd be um, PLS would be available sort of for sort of day-to-day -day support if you needed advice on how to request medical records or how to engage with your clients. Um, and then from there, it you know, there's again the appeal process, um, and we have documents available on um, sort of how, how to file an appeal and what that process is like. Um, so that's pretty much uh, what medical parole looks like, and I'm happy to say more about you know you know working on those cases if it's helpful, but also answer any questions people have. Yeah, I think it would be great, Ada, to hear a little bit about kind of what the experience is like. I know you've done medical parole cases and find it really rewarding. So it would be great to kind of hear not, uh, a little bit about that. Yeah, um, they're, they're tough cases. Again, not so much technically. Um, you know, the petitions themselves don't involve usually a ton of legal research. They're very fact intensive. So mostly what you're relying on is the medical record. And communications with um, you know the person who you're representing, um, but I, I find that this process is incredibly meaningful uh, because you know you're dealing with people who are dying and who really this is their um, their last hope for release before they they sort of before the end of their life. Um, in a lot of cases, um, I guess I'll spend a second just sort of describing what it's like to age in the DOC. So you know you know that nursing homes on the outside are not always the best environments for our loved ones. Um, home placements are not always the best environments either in some cases, but in the DOC, um, people who are aging really get no resources at all. Um, these are physical structures, you know, the facilities themselves that were never built to accommodate people in wheelchairs, people in walkers. And so you've got people who, uh, you know, I regularly have clients who who suffer falls and have to go out to the hospital because they've broken a bone. Um, there are people with really severe dementia who are not getting any sort of, you know, neurocognitive testing to assess how severe their dementia is. Um, they're not getting sent out uh, to providers for treatment. Uh, there are elders who are routinely getting lost within their facilities. And it's because medical providers are not available um, to, to necessarily care for them. Um, what happens is the DOC assigns incarcerated people from general population to help guide folks with dementia. Um, so they help them walk to the medication line, they'll help them get to meals. Um, but this is extraordinarily difficult because, you know, relying on folks inside who have their own issues is just, it's 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 tricky and it creates also a, a difficult power dynamic. Um, and it also means that, you know, where they're not available, correctional officers step in. And these are officers who are not getting sufficient training. And so sometimes, you know, they act in ways that are extremely abusive towards our clients. Um, I was told by actually a class member in the case that Stephanie and I work on that, um, who has Parkinson's and who also is is deaf, who that the way officers get his attention is by kicking his bed. Um, and so, you know, this is not a, a, an appropriate place for elders. Um, this is not a, an appropriate place for people with disabilities. Um, and it certainly isn't a place for people who are facing death. Uh, so I think that, you know, what I find really valuable about working with, you know, folks inside who are at the stage is that you might be kind of the only remaining advocate in their lives. Um, a lot of people are serving, um, you know, longer sentences. And so that's why they're in as, as older folks. And, uh, 
you know, there's really nobody in their corner anymore. So they don't have, you know, spouses or, or children who are advocating for them. So I, I find it really meaningful to sort of be that support system for them uh, towards end of life. And I think we'll get to this later on, but that means that communication is slightly different with this population. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's been really valuable to be that person. Thanks so much for sharing all of that, Ada. Um, so I wanted to now turn a few questions to Stephanie and Jennifer. So I think it would be helpful for people to hear a little bit about how you first got involved with doing work with PLS. And uh, I know, Jennifer, you mentioned that you were a public defender before. So this may be my this part might be more geared towards Stephanie. But if you've had any experience working with incarcerated people or um, people who kind of involved in the system prior to your work with PLS. Um, so I had not had any experience working with people who were incarcerated before the case that I just finished with PLS. Um, I first heard about PLS several years ago when my good friend and colleague left the firm to go take a job there. Um, and so that's when I first heard about PLS and the work that they do. Um, and then the firm does has done many other uh, pro bono cases with PLS as well. Um, I didn't get involved in this case until quite late, actually. So this case was filed in 2015 on behalf of a class of deaf and hard of hearing prisoners. Um, and I joined just in November 2022 when it looked like we were finally going to be going to trial. Um, so that 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 has been my experience and um, with getting started on this case and, and with getting started to do work for PLS. Um, so I, um, I actually got introduced to PLS when I was in law school. I did a internship with the prison brutality project. So I go way back. <laughs> um, and, uh, I ended up getting into, um, public defender work, which, you know, exposed me. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in jails and prisons. So, um, it's a place that I can't say I'm comfortable with, but I'm very, very familiar with. And um, when I um, got out of, I taught for a few years at a um, public defender clinic at Harvard Law School. And when I, when I left there to start my firm, that's when I sort of reunited with PLS um, because my partner, Jeff Wiesner, was, um, has always done civil rights litigation. And so I, they were, um, there's occasionally cases that get referred out as um, we heard about. And so there was, I think right around the time that Jeff and I began our firm, um, we took one of those cases. So, um, and since then have taken others. And so that's sort of how I got, you know, reunited with the PLS work after, after sort of that part of my career. Yeah. And Jed, you mentioned being, you know, familiar with, working in jails and prisons and spending a lot of time there, which I think um, all of us on this panel have done to some extent. But I know a lot of people out there haven't and maybe don't know a lot about what it's like to be in a prison, to work within the confines of a really restrictive system. So I think, and this is for all of you, um, could you describe that a little bit and feel free to get into, you know, the nitty gritty of what it's like to 
visit a prison, what it's like to be able to contact and build a relationship with your clients. Um, anything like that, I think people would love to hear. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny because uh, now since the COVID pandemic, um, basically every jail and prison I still have clients with now do Zoom meetings, um, which that was never an option. Um, and it, I have to say, I really like it because I can meet with the person as much as I want. Um, you know, it, it's uh, going to the, you know, it depends where it is, but most prisons are not somewhere convenient. Um, and so you're driving somewhere and then, you know, there's the, um, there's just a lot of, as you can imagine, security measures and what you can bring in with you. And um, it's not a pleasant place to be. And they usually have uh, attorney meeting rooms, but that really is dependent on the facility, what that actually is. Um, and, you know, you're just, you're just, you're in a prison environment. Um, and so I do think, you know, I think good practice is to meet with people in person um, when you can, and especially initially, because, you know, it's just like you would with anything. Um, but I do, I have found it to be great to be able to set up a Zoom meeting and you get to know someone better when you speak to them more. And um, and so I can just like, you know, I was thinking actually this morning, I need to speak to a client of mine. And so I can just see if there's anything available tomorrow um, where I probably couldn't drive out to the prison. I mean, it can, takes hours, right? You drive there, it's an hour, you wait, inevitably wait a long time. And then you go through security and then you get to the room and then you wait and then they finally come. And, uh, you know, usually they, they, the guards um, somehow are always in the middle of some procedure, which causes you to have to wait longer, <laughs> no matter what time of day you go. Um, you have to learn the ins and outs of that because there's things like count where they count everybody to make sure everybody's still there. And that will delay you. You want to avoid shift changes. I mean, it's there's all these things, but anybody who's done it can give you the tips about how to make it as smooth as possible what to wear to make it easy um how to deal with things like you know going through the security um and setting off alarms and you know sometimes women have particular problems with that because of you know the underwire on your bra and just like you know being equipped to deal with things in a way that's um make sure that nobody is um giving you a hard time or being inappropriate. Um, and then, the, you know, the other part is just, I think what's difficult is um, phone calls are difficult. They cost money. I think this might in some places be changing, but I haven't seen that yet. Um, and you have to make sure that their attorney calls so they're not recorded. Um, and it's just like, they're, they're on timers. I mean, they're short, usually bad connection phone calls. So I don't find that a very good way to talk with people and you can't call your client. They can only call you, um, which I don't think a lot of people realize. And um, the other thing is that can be tricky is just paperwork, getting paperwork to clients. If you need things signed, um, all the different types of releases you need, but you know, anyone who's done this, anyone at PLS could uh, easily walk. Don't, don't suffer <laughs> the first time you're going to do anything like that because 
there's no need to reinvent those wheels. Those wheels have been, you know, grinding for, for years. And I think all of us kind of know how to navigate that stuff. Um, but you know, I think it's important for people to go into prisons. I mean, this is what we do with a segment of our society. And so I think that, you know, if you're a law student, I think there's plenty of opportunities to be able to do that. And so try to find those. Um, but I think, you know, we should all kind of know what's going on and see it. And, um, you know, as far as like, I, I, I say this not because I've ever had this experience, but I think most people not exposed to, to prisoner work would be like, are you scared? Uh, no, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, for a lot of reasons, you know, I've always um, very much enjoyed working with clients. Uh, I've, you know, some, the only time anyone's ever like, I've been concerned is when that person's suffering from a serious mental illness. And I know that, you know, there's, and usually there's, everybody else knows it too. And there's guards there and there's all sorts of things. And so you never make yourself uncomfortable, but it's probably a non-issue. Um, usually it's just the person that you're working with is happy to have you help them. Yeah, that's really great. And I think you touched on a good point about sometimes people are, yeah, concerned going into a prison about the people that they're working with. But I mean, my personal experience going into a prison has been the thing that's most disconcerting for me is the feeling of constantly being watched by guards, feeling that, you know, your every movement is being dictated and scrutinized, which can be unsettling, but I think it's really valuable to experience because you think you're coming in as an attorney or as a law student, someone with a lot of privilege and freedom to experience that is just like a small sliver of what incarcerated people go through every single second of their lives. So I think it's like Jen said, a really valuable thing to experience for the sake of knowing a little bit more about what prison is like. Um, yeah, and Stephanie, I know that you said that prior to Briggs, you hadn't had any experience working with incarcerated folks. So do you have anything you wanted to talk about uh, about your experience there? Um, I mean, I, I really I agree with everything that Jen said about, you know, about working with prisoners. Um, I, I would say before going, there is a little bit of feeling, you know, if not scared, at least a little bit nervous just because you don't know what it's like going there. You know, maybe you've only ever seen prisons on TV. You know, even the list that they give you beforehand of like what you can wear and what you can't wear it, it gives you the impression that you're just going to be like wandering around this prison and people are just going to be, you know, seeing you and yelling at you everywhere you go. Um, and that's just not the case. Um, you know, it's my experiences were that I went into, you know, the visitors area and the, you know, the, the client was brought out to me and then we, we met in an office basically very quietly. Um, and yes, there were guards there, but, uh, but, but it was more or less once you got in and passed all of the security, more or less like any other client meeting. Um, and I think too, that because of a lot of the stories that we are hearing from our own clients about what it's like to be, um, in prison, there's some nervousness about the officers as well. You know, you hear a lot of officers, a lot of stories about officers behaving badly. 
or cruelly. Um, and I think, you know, partially because I'm a lawyer and I'm, I'm, I'm right there. But I also think that like, by and large, people are not, you know, just going to be <laughs> aggressive and cruel with you, um, you know, off the bat, you know, more or less, like everybody there is just doing a job. Um, and, and, you know, you're not there to make, you're not trying to make their job any harder. And they're not trying to make your job any harder. We, we all know that we're there just to, to get through it. So, you know, I would say that after having done it once or twice, I really, I really think that it's not that scary of an experience at all. And, um, you know, I always had someone from PLS with me, Ada or, or one of her colleagues come with me. And I totally agree that that made everything much easier, especially the first time. I mean, they just, from telling me which forms to fill out, what order to, to, to go in, um, you know, watching them interact with the, with the officers, um, and, you know, explaining to me and just giving, telling me what to expect in terms of the, um, you know, in terms of the prison security, all of that really made everything much, much easier. Um, so on the occasions when I did have to go visit clients in prison, it, it actually, um, you know, it actually just really normalized the experience. Once you're, once you're in and sitting down and talking with people, it's just like any other client meeting. Ada, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I was going to, I think that's totally right, Stephanie. And I was going to also just follow up on something that Jennifer said about communication. Um, I think that, you know, um, when I first started working with people inside, I think the thing that was most jarring, having come from a different sort of, you know, civil legal services uh, office was that it just communication takes so much longer, right? So for the most part, we communicate through legal mail. Um, and phone calls. And as Jennifer said, you know, you can't call your own client, um, which I still think is, is rather absurd. You know, you have to wait for calls to come to you. Um, and so that means that, you know, if somebody can't reach you at a specific time or the phone lines are not working, um, they may not be able to reach you to tell you something urgent. And then so there's a sort of there's a little bit of anxiety, you know, um, some concern, especially with people who have serious medical conditions that they're not going to be able to reach you and you need you need to hear from them the most. Um, the Zooms have really alleviated that. I think it's really helpful to be able to just, you know, and this, the scheduling process is usually pretty quick. Like you just have to usually request um, a day in advance. Um, so I think that's really helped alleviate some of the fears, but um, definitely it's valuable to go in person the first few times you visit and then, um, you know, on, a, on an ongoing basis, somewhat regularly to see your client in person, especially if they're somebody who struggles with communication over Zoom. So, you know, for clients who have, you know, um, hearing impairments who might find Zoom really challenging or find the captions to be insufficient, you know, it was important in that case to, to visit periodically. Um, it's the same with individuals who have dementia or other types of cognitive impairment that make, make it really jarring to see a face on a screen. I think another thing that was surprising to me was that um, folks inside when at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of them had never seen the sort of like video call before. And so they were really confused, especially, you know, people who are on the older side were like, well, how are you appearing on a screen, you know, right now? And I think it's just that we take it for granted that there are all these forms of technology that are available to us um, and folks inside have never really been exposed to it. And so they have no idea whether they're talking to a TV or whether they're talking to you in real time or whether this is a recording and that that can be you know harder for people, especially if they're older, they're just sort of not used to this type of communication. Um, 
stress building in this context is incredibly important because people have histories of trauma, really extensive histories of trauma. Some people are dealing with um, mental illness, as as Jennifer mentioned, that's going untreated. And so um, in these really isolated conditions that a lot of people are living in, they expect you to disappear and they expect, you know, um, especially attorneys to not be in contact for long periods of time working on cases. Um, but I think that to sort of relieve some of the the stress of figuring out, you know, when are you going to meet with me again or when am I going to see you again? It's important to keep sort of the, the letter communication open. So to write back and forth a bunch um, and to just also make space in your conversations for um, hearing out various other issues that they're dealing with and, you know, addressing them full on, just saying, you know, I can't help you with XYZ other issue that you've raised, but um, thank you for sharing that with me because for a lot of people also, um, this might've been their first contact with an attorney for decades, you know, in decades. And so when they talk to you, they think, oh, I have access to this person who's able to advocate for me. Maybe they can advocate on all these other issues. And I think even if the answer is that you can't do it, I think it's valuable to still listen um, and, and explicitly say that um, and to not overpromise as well. So yeah, we can get more into sort of trust building and how important that is, but I think that that's a really important facet with with people inside. Yeah, that's really helpful, Ada. Um, and I would like to talk more kind of about that, but first I thought it would also be interesting to hear a little bit about, you know, the substantive work that um, people who work with us do on their cases. So. I know, uh, I know you just went to trial, Stephanie and Ada, so I think it would be great if the two of you talked a little bit about that. And Jen, I know you have really extensive experience doing all parts of um, civil rights cases that we refer to you and other civil rights cases. So it would be, yeah, it would be helpful to hear about kind of the substantive work that you actually do on these cases. Um. Sure. So I, I can start with the trial that we recently had this summer. So um, as I mentioned, this was a class action on behalf of deaf and hard of hearing prisoners. It was actually filed by PLS back in 2015. And I only joined really for the tail end in 2022. Um, but essentially, you know, people who were deaf and hard of hearing in the prisons were being ignored. They were not getting full access to basically any of the programs and services that were being offered in the prison. So not getting full access to educational, rehab, vocational programs. They weren't able to fully access or participate in religious services. They weren't unable to fully participate in their own medical and, and you know, health services. They weren't getting the counseling that they should have been able to get. Um, you know, they were be participating in disciplinary hearings that they weren't able to fully participate in because of the communication problems. Um, you know, they were unable to communicate with their families because there wasn't accessible sort of telecommunications devices. I mean, on and on and on. There were just a number of things where people who were deaf or hard of hearing, um, you know, they're, they're, their ability to access the programs in the prisons was um, was very very limited, um, including because people were not either either not getting hearing aids or their hearing aids would not be repaired or the batteries would not be replaced um, sufficiently. So there were just there were a whole host of problems um, that were all filed in the, as part of this complaint back in 2015. And in 2019, the team actually came to um, a huge settlement agreement with the state over 
the vast majority of these issues. Um, and, um, you know, the state agreed to, you know, identify even <laughs> people who were deaf and hard of hearing. I mean, I had to start even at that basic level um, to provide a lot of um, uh, services and accommodations in order for people to access things, um, to get video conferencing um, technology, for example. Um, and uh, I think very importantly, they agreed to monitoring and reporting, regular monitoring and reporting of um, of the progress that they're making on these issues. And PLS, with some help with from Wilmer Hale, continues to monitor and and review those reports on a regular basis, even now, um, and to 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 make sure that DOC is complying and and to make sure that the court knows when DOC is not complying. Um, so you know that is. That is a huge amount of work um, that, you know, didn't get the glamour of going to trial on, but is really like a, really a lot of work hours from PLS um, and and others uh, to to keep that going and to make sure that um, that things keep going into the future. Um, so that is really, you know, 90 percent of the case right there. I joined just for like the last 10 percent of the case, which was. Um, the trial that we had this summer, I joined in November when it became clear that we were finally going to have a trial um, after all these years. Um, the only issue that actually went to trial was the issue of um, emergency alarms, fire alarms, basically. Um, and, and to put it in a nutshell, you know, these, these prison facilities have not been upgraded in a very, very long time. Um, and many of them have audible only alarms. If, if they have fire alarms at all. And um, for people who are deaf and hard of hearing and have a hard time hearing announcements and notifications anyway, um, this is especially dangerous. I mean, they, they literally do not have any access to emergency notifications. Um, and, you know, DOC's sort of response to this was that, you know, officers would go and find them personally. Um, just, they would just, they would just know who needed to get personal notifications. They could wave their arms, and that someone would just know somehow that they that they that they had to get out. Um, so, um, you know, we <laughs> we didn't think that that made sense or that that was equal. Or, and frankly, they couldn't even point to a policy that said they would do that, um, regardless of whether or not people actually would do that if the building were on fire. They couldn't even point to a policy that said. This is the policy. They they were just sort of assuming that everything would just be fine. Um, so you know, we had a, a seven or eight day trial in August. We had um, I think eight um, eight prisoners come in as witnesses to describe their experiences of being deaf and hard of hearing um, in in the DOC facilities. Um, you know, and these were people who had a wide variety of hearing disabilities. So everything from people who were born deaf to people who um, had hearing loss um, from being, you know, just just from being older or, or later in life. Um, and all of them described their experiences of being in prison, of not getting notifications from officers, of missing drills, um, things like that. We also had several expert witnesses come and testify. So we had an expert. Um, uh, uh, an expert who um, talked about, again, the range of hearing that people who are deaf and hard of hearing can hear, whether or not they can hear an alarm, how far away from an alarm they would have to be to hear it. Um, 
And even if you could hear it, whether you would even know that it was an alarm um, to explain that kind of thing. We had um, an expert architect come in to explain, you know, that it would not be an undue burden to swap out these audible alarms for visual alarms or to just add visual alarms to the system. Um, and we had um, another expert who, who talked about just the availability of those kinds of alarms, the availability of the kinds of accommodations that we were that we were asking for. Um, uh, and DOC brought some of their witnesses as well. They had, you know, their fire safety person. They had someone from the Massachusetts Commission uh, for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. Um, you know, they had the they had their architect, the person who was who would have been responsible for installing the alarms, come and testify. So it was really quite a fascinating, uh, a fascinating trial. Um, it was a bench trial, no jury. Um, and then afterwards, we had you know several months of post trial briefing, and we just had closings last Wednesday. So we don't have a decision yet. We're hoping to have one by the end of the year. Uh, but but that in 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 a nutshell, very briefly, is is what we did. And Ada was there and helping us with witnesses as well. So I don't know if Ada, you have anything to add. Um, I'll just add that, you know, I think as Sarah mentioned, we're a pretty small office. Um, I, I can't remember, I think our, our total staff is something like 25 or certainly less than 30. And so um, it was, of course, like never going to be possible for us as a law office to take this on. Um, ourselves. So I think that, you know, it was really extraordinary. Like I, I was involved in that case, um, I think starting in 2021. And at that point, it was a lot of what we were doing was still settlement monitoring. And um, we hadn't started sort of preparing for trial yet. And it was really incredible to see such a experienced trial team come on board. Um, I learned a lot about um, just sort of the operations around trial and, um, you know, how to create sub teams and, um, make sure that all the sub teams are sort of, you know, acting in conjunction with each other and all sort of doing roughly the same thing to prepare witnesses. Um, and so I think it was really extraordinary. And I think it was also just really would not have been possible without the firm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really cool to also I, I think it's, you know, here we were working with Disability Law Center, um, Prisoners Legal Services, us, and then also the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. And so we had um, a fairly big group of, of subject matter experts sort of all over uh, the different organizations. And I will say also that Stephanie, um, I think 100% built up expertise in this area and that there are a few senior senior associates who I believe um, George Manley at uh, Wilmer who had been on the team for several years leading up to trial and himself was probably as much of an expert on, you know, issues related to people who are deaf and hard of hearing as PLS is at this point. So um, I think it's a really unique opportunity to also build up that kind of expertise within the firm um, if it's an issue that you want to continue working on um, in a pro bono capacity. So. Thank you so much. Uh, Jen, could you talk a little bit about the sorts of things that you do kind of substantively um, in your cases? Sure. Um, so uh, I can, I, there's two cases that I think can give a sense of what we have worked on. Um, one was a um, prisoner guard excessive force case. So um, in that case, the client actually um, was wrapping up his sentence. And so we waited until he was released to file the suit, um, which 
gets you out of some difficult administrative requirements. Um, that's a, another, that's another, uh, webinar, <laughs> but, um, but we, um, this was a case that came out of MCI Concord. Um, and the client has, he's actually testified in front of the state legislature. So I know he's comfortable, you know, with us talking about what happened, but basically he, um, he had made a comment to a guard who, who was, um, he didn't think was, um, distributing the mail to inmates in the proper manner. And, uh, this guard just had took real issue with with him and called him out into a hallway that happened to be a hallway, the the one area with no camera. Um, surprise, surprise. And um, other guard, there was a there was um, a guard booth that could oversee this area, and they called out a uh, like an SOS basically, and uh, some other guards responded quickly and um client ended up with uh broken ribs i mean he was beaten from head to toe his ear was ripped from his head and just like this is gross sorry but like hanging um and he was like dragged to the um medical unit and um in the in the medical unit um I'm laughing because we sued one of the medical people too because for um this became an issue of excessive force but also a cover up. Um so to the DOC's credit, they did a very thorough internal investigation into everybody who had been involved in this. And um I mean everybody lied and everybody wrote a report that basically looked the same. Um and they wrote it in they wrote an initial report and like, this is all coming back to me. And then they, they all submitted like on the same day, a supplemental report in which they talked about how, how our client had initiated the violence and all the things he was doing that caused them to need to restrain him. Um, anyway, the, um, what made me really angry was that the, the medical nurse who, um, who also um, wrote a report basically suggesting that he had a pre-existing ear condition that would have caused his ear of <laughs> so you can't make this stuff up <laughs> um, and uh and the great thing about her is during discovery we discovered she was married to one of the guards her dad was a captain I'm not making this up her brother-in-law was a guard I mean it was like she was related to the entire facility so um her bias became obvious um so anyway, uh, it, it was um, it was a case that settled. Uh, it took a long time. They initially, um, you know, we initially they weren't taking us very seriously. I find the DOC, if you really fight with them, they eventually take you seriously. Um, it's a struggle. I think that, um, you know, on a substance level, the issues are very interesting they're very complicated legally. Um, there's a lot of brief writing. Um, I believe that, yeah, there was a motion to dismiss uh, filed in the case. Um, you know, civil rights conspiracies, that was one of the claims. Those are, it's just like very difficult to um, to allege basically. Um, the law is not great. We did survive that. 
Um, and then we survived summary judgment and were able to resolve it after that. And a real goal there, I mean, it, there was clear liability with the original officer, um, both because of his own statements and, you know, it was obvious what he had done. Um, but they, um, they weren't indemnifying him. They, he, they cut him loose. So there was really nothing to recover from him. You know, this is not somebody with any money and we really wanted to get the DOC on the hook. And so we really pursued the other officers, both for their participation, but also some higher ups for the cover up. Um, and during depositions, you know, and we also got some discovery. I, you know, the great thing about doing litigation with the DOC is like with each case, you learn things that help you for the next case. You know, I know now like how their computer system works, how, you know, all this stuff, all these details. And we were able to get internal computer um, data to show like who logged into the computer when, when they edited the report, who looked at the report. Um, and that really made a big difference in showing how they had all basically, uh, you know, cheated <laughs> by looking at what everybody else was saying in order to come up with their own um, false reports. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, it was, um, it was a, a big fight. It took a while but it was nice to be able to do that for the client who, you know, I mean, I think, you know, when we were talking about going into a prison and um, that feeling of being watched, the other thing is you're trapped, um, you know, you're locked into this place. And, and I think that that the vulnerability when you can be taken out into a hallway and beaten within an inch of your life, um, and they can cover it up. And, and, and he, so he ended up in um, segregation in the hole for months awaiting the internal affairs um, disposition, which of course exonerated, basically at the end of it all exonerated everybody. But, um, you know, then he loses good time. He loses his ability to like have regular visits. He, you know, I mean, it, it has a huge impact. And just the idea that that, that you can, um, that you're so at the mercy of these people was, I think, very traumatic. Um, so um, there's another case that we we have going on now that's a mixture of um, a uh, case involving medical issues and solitary. And so that's um, that's been going on for a few years now. It began when the client filed a motion for a preliminary injunction, basically asking the court to tell the DOC to stop handcuffing him in a particular way um, because of a severe arthritic condition he has. That, and this had been going on for about 10 years by the time he filed his own suit. Um, and uh, we got involved at that point and got an expert and actually the DOC then had to get an expert and everybody agreed you can't, you couldn't manipulate this individual's shoulders in a, this particular way to put him in handcuffs behind the back. Um, the, that his range of motion just didn't accommodate that. So, um, you know, they've been torturing the guy for 10 years. And, uh, but the other part of, the, and, you know, we're still fighting that battle in some ways because they've definitely accommodated him. So this is like an ADA accommodation type issue. Um, and then there's also just the sort of cruel and unusual punishment 
claims that were brought and the um there's also a mental illness solitary aspect to it and so this client is i believe the um so the uh, um has been held in solitary the longest period of time in Massachusetts of any inmate. He, uh, it was about, I want to say 18 years, 12 of those years, he was in um, this particular unit of um, MCI Cedar Junction, which is now closed, thank God, which I, we actually went there to see, have a view of, the um the cells where he was held before they knock the place down or whatever um but it was it was it's a windowless room um that he was lived in for 12 years and basically never came out like didn't go outside I mean just like talk about torture um and that was partly I mean untreated mental illness um punishment because of they didn't like him and things he had done. And they decided that because he was dangerous, they could treat him this way. Um, it's very ugly, like very ugly. And um, I will say that in the last, I'd say maybe two years ago now, they, they finally removed him from that area. And the difference, both in his behavior, he hasn't had a ticket in that time. He has access to like they give people iPads. He didn't have property for like 20 years. Um, so now he like can read the news. Um, he has access to a television. Um, he's away from Walpole where everyone treated him terribly. So it's um, just that has made such a difference. I mean, the, the case goes on um, and we'll see what other changes we can make, but just seeing like this human being um, you know, he's going to spend his life in prison, but it's, um, you know, you just can't treat people that way. Um, so it's been very rewarding to fight for him and, um, and to, you know, I, for me, I mean, I started going to Walpole when I was an intern with PLS 20 something years ago. And so to go there when it's empty and, uh, closed, I mean, I, it, that felt really good and I, I you know I know it's the work of you know groups like PLS and the lawyers who work with them that are changing these types of practices and facilities like that are closing so it's a good thing to be a part of yeah thank you so much for sharing those stories they're really horrific and I'm so glad that you're able to fight for your clients in the way that you are um I want to come around to you one more time at the very end, but just so we have time, um, I wanted to once again, talk about how to get involved in pro bono. Hopefully we've piqued your interest um, in the really important work that our pro bono partners do. So there are a few ways that you can get involved. Um, the Really the easiest way to just start that initial contact would be to send me an email. Um, my email address, you can find it really easily on our website, but it's sblair at plsma.org. And if you reach out to me, then I will do my best to find you a pro bono opportunity that works well for you. And I know we often have a lot of people who are interested, but who might be newer attorneys or not really have the capacity or the authority within their firm to take on a 
you know, a big case. These are big cases and they involve a lot of work. But um, so medical parole is a really great opportunity for folks like that. So as Ada mentioned, we're actually working on developing a more robust training, training materials, training actual programs for folks who want to do medical parole. So if you reach out to me, I can put you on a list to be notified right away once we start offering those opportunities. And then we can train you. And once you're trained, um, as we get potential cases in, we can try to get those to you. Um, if you do think you'd be able to take on case referrals, either on a pro bono or a contingency fee basis, you can, again, either email me or we have a sign up on the website to sign up for our referral network. And if you are maybe at a big firm and think that the impact litigation that we do or these bigger cases that we do sound really interesting to you, but you're not in a position to say, yes, our firm is going to take that. It's still really helpful for you to talk to the partners that you work with, to the pro bono coordinators at your firm. Let them know that you're interested in doing prison work. Let them know that it's important to you because they like to hear that and they take that feedback and use that as they decide on the firm's pro bono priorities. So if you want to have those conversations with the people that you work with, that's great. If you want me to be a part of those conversations, to put me in touch with folks who do make the decisions, again, just reach out to me and I'm really happy to do my best to make that happen. But um, I just wanted to kind of close out by giving all of our wonderful panelists just a chance to share any final thoughts, any advice or insights about this work um, before we let you all go on with your day. I would just say that um, I think that even a smaller uh, case can really affect change within the DOC, that they don't have the capacity to be sued all the time. They only, you know, they just, they only have so many lawyers and so many resources and they're going to, you know, things that are legitimate, they seem to respond to. And so I, I encourage people to think about taking on, even if it's, you know, a smaller um, medical issue or just, uh, just to put some pressure on and it's a and it's a great way to learn um you know I, I would definitely say that if you have the opportunity to take a pls case you you definitely should this is one of the most rewarding experiences i've ever had as a lawyer um was being involved in this case and getting to know these clients and getting to know the work that pls does i learned so much from ada and her colleagues about this population about the things that they face um, and just going to the prisons, meeting with our clients, all of that humanizes and normalizes some things that like just a huge part of our society that a lot of us just don't see, um, you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind. There's no one is more unseen than a person who has been, you know, locked away. And I think, you know, just getting comfortable with that, um, seeing them as people, um, and also like seeing people who are no longer in prison, like after people come out of prison and come back into society, they're not really seen as, as full people either. And so I think this really makes a difference um, from, from that perspective. And then I also think if you're at all interested in civil rights, um, you know, this is one of the best places to do that kind of stuff, because there's just no place where our civil rights are more important or impactful than 
with populations who are extremely vulnerable. And this is one of the most extreme, most vulnerable populations you'll you'll ever come to. I mean, to, to echo some of the things that Jen says, you are you are fully at the mercy of the state here. Um, and and so that is where that is where civil rights comes in. I mean, that is one of the only protections you have um, are your civil rights and the lawyers who help you um, protect them. So I, I, I highly recommend that anyone who even thinks they're at all interested, even a little bit, should definitely reach out to Sarah and, and get some of this work. Yeah, the last thing I'll add, um, I think which relates to all of that, is that at PLS, we've been you know trying to, over the years, shift towards a sort of more community movement lawyering based model. And so that means that we have a lot of communication with folks inside about policy issues as well. And also just when we're figuring out our litigation priorities, we're always consulting with people who are incarcerated, who are dealing with these, um, you know, all of all of the situations that Jennifer and Stephanie have described firsthand. Um, and so I think that's something that's really valuable about our law office. And that's something that we've been trying to grow towards. And um, you'd be growing with us uh, as, as you know, we go on that journey. And so I, yeah, I really think it's it's valuable to sort of stay connected to the groups inside and our pro, our pro bono partners help us do that. And I think are also a really big part of how we sort of bridge the the sort of communi communication barriers that have been set up by the state and all these other barriers that um, isolate the general public and, and advocates from people inside. So um, yeah, that's all I'll say. And also just that I, again, I love worked, I loved working with Wilmer, loved working with Stephanie and um, yeah, really glad to have um, pro bono support also on our board as well. So. Yeah, thank you all again so much. Uh, thank you to the panelists and to the BBA for putting this on and for everybody who gave up their lunch hour to listen to us talk about prisons. Um, I put my email address in the Q&A, but uh, one more time, it's S. Blair, so my first initial and then my last name, at plsma.org. And you can also find it on our website on our pro bono page there. And please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm very responsive and really excited to work with people to figure out what pro bono opportunities work best for them. And I really hope that some of you reach out and that we can be in touch in the future. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you.